0: Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtafer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Sorry for my absence last week, but I actually had two shows that I wanted to release on Patreon first. Those shows are going to be released this week, and in the future, many episodes will be behind a paywall for early release before they come out on the main feed. The first of these episodes is my conversation with Peter Grinspoon, M.D., author of Seeing Through the Smoke, A Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. We'll be discussing all things marijuana with Peter, who is the son of Lester Grinspoon, one of the leading researchers into cannabis and psychedelics at Harvard. I think you'll find Peter's view rather unique, as he is critical of both what he calls reefer-pessimists, people who believe that cannabis is the devil's plant, as well as canatopians, or those who believe that cannabis is a miracle-cure-all, it-can-do-anything plant. This is a balanced view of marijuana, from a specialist in the field. So, without any further ado, let's get right to it with Peter Grinspoon, author of Seeing Through the Smoke, A Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to be speaking with. Peter Grinspoon, an American-born physician uh, and also a medical cannabis specialist with a new book out, Seeing Through the Smoke, A Cannabis Expert Untangles the Truth About Marijuana, and also before that, the 2016 memoir, Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction, uh, which was a very, very good book. Uh, How are you doing uh, today, Peter? I'm doing excellent. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, Just for my listeners, maybe you could give uh, a little bit of background, not just on yourself, but also uh, maybe your father and uh, his background when it came to cannabis.
1: Oh, sure. Well, let me start with my dad. My dad was a very legendary psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. He uh, was interesting for a whole number of reasons. Um, He started out writing a book in the early 1970s about cannabis and at the time, he, like the other psychiatrists at the time, were like, what are these foolish young people doing smoking marijuana? But my dad did a very deep dive into the literature, and he was a really independent thinker. And he came to the conclusion, actually, um, that while cannabis certainly has some potential harms it, you know, for teens, um, for pregnant women, he came out very strongly in his 1971 book, Marijuana Reconsidered, in favor of legalization of marijuana because he was fearing that, first of all, we were overlooking many of the medical and lifestyle benefits of cannabis. And second of all, that the harms of criminalization were so much worse than the harms of using cannabis, it didn't make any sense. So he came out in 1971, when about 12% of Americans uh, supported full legalization. It went up about a point for each of the 50 years that my dad worked on it. He passed away a couple years ago, but now 69% of Americans support full legalization. My dad was a very, very dedicated um, scholar and advocate for cannabis legalization. One other thing I'll say about him is that he also wrote a book in 1979 called Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered. And he was calling from the rooftops for the study and use of psychedelics in psychiatry. And he got nothing but like persecution from Harvard Medical School. He was a ahead of his time and people gave, they give him such a hard time. But now 40 years later at Harvard, we have this huge study for the Center of Psychedelic Medicine. And we have that at many other top medical institutions, NYU, Johns Hopkins, UCSF. So my dad really was incredible in that he had a lot of integrity and he managed to be like very far ahead of his time. And he wasn't afraid at all at taking an unpopular position, of course. Every position he took back then, which was unpopular, is now popular now, which is a kind of a testament to how ahead of his time he was. And then for me, I grew up in a household where there were all these like smart academics and luminaries debating cannabis, cannabis legalization. In my I was household. gonna
0: say, have you ever did you ever get a chance
1: to meet Carl Sagan? <laughs> Tons of times. Actually, um, I have a picture of Carl Sagan teaching me how to read. When I was just a little kid, I'm happy to send that to you afterwards. I always joke that I was teaching him how to read, (laughs) but he was obviously teaching me how to read. And, you know, it was really interesting. Carl Sagan is a perfect example. Like at my home, the peace pipe would always be going around. People would be talking about like saving the planet, stopping nuclear war, solving hunger, all these really, really deep issues. And these people were so motivated. They were actually changing the world. And then I go to school in like middle school, high school, and we get the same old lectures by the same policemen that would waddle in year after year about dare and about how cannabis makes you stupid and amotivational. And the message I was getting at home was that cannabis was like this intellectual and social lubricant that like facilitated people having these really deep, interesting thoughts. And the message I got at school was that the dare program was totally full of it. And it like was completely lying to us about everything. So it was confusing when I was like 12. When I was like 16, I like figured out Dara's lying. You know, drugs aren't nearly as bad as they say they are. Some people get into trouble with them, but we shouldn't, you know, stigmatize them. So I had, a, you know, been involved in the cannabis issue. And in fact, all the drugs, not just cannabis, but mostly cannabis my entire life. And I have been treating people with medical cannabis for about 20 years, like my entire medical career. And as you, as you mentioned, I just came up with this book which covers really everything all the harms all the benefits all the lifestyle benefits the social history so uh cannabis is something that's like oh and then finally i should mention my older brother danny um when i was growing up was a medical cannabis patient as well in the early 1970s my parents illegally bought him cannabis uh because he was fighting an unsuccessful battle with leukemia and even though again i was a kid i was like eight But there's nothing more impactful than witnessing the alleviation of suffering on a family member. And when my brother Danny didn't use cannabis, he'd just be like lying in his bedroom with a towel over his head, throwing up into a barf bucket by the side of the bed. And when he used cannabis, he could eat, he could play guitar, strumming his Fender Fender Stratocaster. And most importantly to me, he could come down and play with his boisterous little twin brothers. So I learned from a very, very early age that cannabis is, in fact, a medicine for some people under some circumstances. And and that knowledge really immunized me, I think, uh, from all the nonsense they teach you in medical school about, which is pretty much what the D.A.R.E. program teaches you, but for adults, uh, it's so silly what they teach about cannabis. So I've been a pro-cannabis in my medical practice my entire career. So it's
0: interesting to me. I mean, I come at this from a perspective of – I'm very much against the war on drugs. I think the war on drugs is a massive failure. I think it's a, you know, just a political mess and it's put so many people in jail uh, for basically, you know, harmless activity, in my opinion. You know, if you want to use drugs, that's on you. Um, But I was I was never into like using um, marijuana or cannabis myself. I guess, what do you say to people that don't know about the medical side? Because I'm not as aware of that. I've known success stories. Like, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Jesse Ventura. His wife, uh, you know, had experienced seizures um, for some time, tried to get her multiple treatments. uh, But the only thing that worked for her was cannabis. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the medical benefits of cannabis, because I'm not as – uh, well-researched on that as you are, of course.
1: That's, that's really interesting. That's a great question. I usually get the opposite question because you know, 94% of Americans support legal access to medical marijuana. That's how effective it is. Now, I would sort of challenge you to name anything else that 94% of Americans agree on. They don't agree that the sky is blue or that I think the earth is flat. So I think that you know, who would have thought, especially in my dad's time like 50 years ago, that cannabis would be the thing that unites. But the reason people are so... In favor of medical marijuana is that it's effective. It helps people. It, they see it helping their kids, their parents, their uncle, their sister, and it treats some of the issues that we're not good at treating generally as doctors. Take, for example, chronic pain. Uh, millions of Americans have chronic pain, tens of millions of Americans. And as we all get older, or a little portlier, our backs or knees or hips start to give out, that's the kind of pain that the cannabis is really good for. And what are your alternatives for chronic pain? Uh, nobody wants to be an opiates. If you can even find a doctor to prescribe you opiates, we have had more than 100,000 overdose deaths from opiates. And then, you know, Tylenol does nothing except maybe wreck your liver, um, but doesn't do anything for your pain. If you've ever, yeah. And then the non-steroidals, your ibuprofen, your Advil, your Diclofenac, your Aleve, your Naperson, they, if they don't give you a heart attack, they kill about 10,000 people a year from heart attacks or a bleeding ulcer because they give you gastritis, They kill your kidneys. I have so many patients in their 50s, 60s, 70s whose kidneys are just dying. And then here you have medical marijuana. This doesn't necessarily mean using a huge quantity and getting stoned out of your gourd. It just means using, for example, some CBD with a little bit of THC mixed in, not necessarily smoking it. A lot of people don't want to smoke medicine. You could put it under your tongue, for example, as a tincture and have it kick in in 20 minutes. And it can very gently not only help with your pain, it can dull your pain. It could numb the part of your brain that says, this pain is bothering me. So the pain doesn't bother you as much. You could do other stuff. It helps your anxiety about the pain. And it helps your insomnia with the pain. And according to every poll, your health-related quality of life goes up. So, I mean, another example would be insomnia. The stuff we use to treat insomnia is like lethal. The Ambien's, the Trazodone's, the Valium's. Cannabis is a much safer, for many people, it doesn't work for everybody, and there are some people that shouldn't use it. It's not a cure-all, but generally speaking, it's a safer and gentler medication, a natural plant-based, relatively non-toxic medication to help people sleep that's very very hard to argue that ambient or something like that is safer than cannabis. So people are finding it to be a a safer and more tolerable alternative to the the pharmaceuticals that we're just bombarded with by our doctors.
0: So you mentioned that it's not for everybody. I, I have to be honest, with my own experience, I've always found that cannabis sort of just, I have anxiety issues. So it's for some reason i don't know if it's just the way my brain is wired i've always sort of felt anxious on it um so what are maybe like the the downsides and how do those downsides get um maybe overblown in some ways because like i said i'm not a big user myself but you know i also think it's overblown how much uh negative press it's gotten in the past
1: Well, absolutely. Well, first of all, I do want to say about anxiety. Cannabis is biphasic when it comes to anxiety, meaning in very low doses, it lowers people's anxiety. And in higher doses, it raises your anxiety. So it's biphasic. But everybody's different. I have some patients that can't use any cannabis at all because even one puff will make them very anxious. So it can cause anxiety. However, I have other patients where, again, we use mostly CBD, Add a little bit of THC. The CBD helps with the anxiety. It balances the THC, and it makes it so they can tolerate. So if you're ever interested, <laughs> I'm not trying to push it on you, but you would try like you know get like a tincture, this like four to one CBD to THC, and then start with like a milligram of THC. Like a puff is like five milligrams. You start with these teeny 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 doses, and you could usually get people up to a level where they're feeling less anxious rather than more anxious. But the war on drugs necessitated demonizing cannabis. They didn't have enough people, heroin and cocaine, to wage this flat out assault on like, you know, people of color and you know the anti-war left. And you know yeah, without-
0: I was gonna say not to interrupt you, but even calling it marijuana. Like uh you know, it's yeah. like Hispanic panic. And also, you know, the thing that always gets me is uh that movie Reefer Madness or any <laughs> of the other number of movies that were like reefer madness from back in the 30s and you know even if i'm not like a big cannabis smoker or user myself you just look at a a movie like that and you're like did people really believe this back then that you would like go crazy and go on a rampage after you smoked some reefer
1: yeah no and the funny part is in the in the in the poster for the movie they have a syringe like nobody injects cannabis you can't possibly inject it Uh, So it's just kind of funny that they scare people with the syringe. I don't know about you, but I've never seen anybody injecting. But so for the war on drugs, they needed to vilify cannabis. So they essentially the government just just put out nonsense for 50 years. They just flat out lied to it. You know, first they called you grew breasts and sperm damage and DNA damage and brain damage and then All these other things, a gateway theory, you use marijuana, and all of a sudden, at age five, you're on heroin. I mean, it was was so ridiculous, all the myths and all the nonsense. And sadly, the doctors went along with this. They didn't do what my dad did, which was think for themselves. As my dad describes it, the doctors were both victims of and perpetrators of this vast misinformation campaign by the US government. And what's happening is ironically what happened with the D.A.R.E. program. Teenagers realized they were lying about cannabis with the D.A.R.E. program because it didn't jive with their lived experience of using cannabis. They tried it. Now, I don't think teenagers should use cannabis, but the teenagers used it. Nothing bad happened. And then they discarded the entire D.A.R.E. message. Drug use went up. Alcohol use went up because they just lied about it. And once you lose credibility with a teenager, good luck getting it back. Uh, We're still paying the price. Uh, for all that nonsense. And I I just think that um, as people's lived experience, you know, the 60s, the 70s, a lot of people use cannabis and they were like, hey, this isn't causing my testicles to fall off, breasts to grow, brain damage, sperm damage. I'm not on heroin, right? I mean, it's absolute nonsense. So I think that this whole um, so that the intellectual component of the war on drugs is literally crumbling before our very eyes, not just with cannabis, but with a whole bunch of other drugs as well, psychedelics being a good example of this.
0: I was going to ask, so was it just government behind the sort of disinformation campaign? Were there industries that didn't really uh, oh, want cannabis absolutely. going far?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, cannabis was never criminalized based on health concerns. Ironically, in 1937, when it was criminalized, But one of the leading voices that testified to Congress is the American Medical Association. They're like, hey, this is a helpful medication. We prescribe this. Don't make this illegal. It had nothing to do with health. It had to do with racism. Uh, People were concerned about or racist people were concerned about African-American jazz musicians who use cannabis. And as you mentioned, the local weed that the local Mexicans were using. It's the same racism that we have at the Southern border today we had back then, except they changed the word cannabis, as you said, to marijuana to try to stigmatize, scare and taint people about that. But there were commercial interests. I mean, alcohol and tobacco have never wanted um, a competitor uh, and they've, they've uh, contributed lavishly uh, on the anti-campaign of of every single state referendum. Uh, they, in fact, the alcohol and the tobacco Companies got in trouble for donating to the Partnership for Drug Free America. And here you have alcohol and tobacco funding these ads saying, These are your brains on drugs. Like, wait a minute, alcohol and tobacco are drugs too, you idiots. But furthermore, it was the petrochemical industry, the paper industry, and a bunch of other industries just didn't want the competition from hemp. So they teamed up with this really racist guy named Harry Anslinger, who was the first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which is a predecessor of, I guess, the Drug Enforcement Agency, but back in the 1930s and 1940s. And they teamed up with Hearst Media. Um, And Hearst Media, which also was intertwined with many of these industries that didn't want hemp as a competitor, spread the most lurid, scary, sensationalist stories about your white daughters smoking a joint and then having sex with black men and becoming pregnant and getting STDs. It was awful. It was so ugly the way they tainted... And just flat out lied about and fabricated things to help criminalize cannabis. So happily, luckily, we're coming out of uh 50 years of this, or actually more like 75 years of this. But as you allude to, a lot of these, a lot of the stigma sticks around. It doesn't dissipate overnight and it's harming people. It's making people feel bad about using a less dangerous medication that many of them would otherwise be using.
0: Could you talk a little bit about? you know, sort of spiked research uh, and and like sp- maybe specific examples that you uh, use in the book to talk about how research into cannabis over the years has sort of been uh, not handled in the best or most objective way?
1: Well, the U.S. government, for example, starting all the way back with NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, Robert DuPont was ahead of it. He was as against cannabis as you possibly could be. That was because he had made a fortune doing drug testing. He wanted to drug test everybody and you couldn't drug test people unless there were illegal drugs to catch them for. So it was all corrupt and hypocritical from beginning to end. But the US government didn't fund any research into the benefits of cannabis for the over for the last 50 years. And furthermore, they wouldn't fund any researchers that were interested in studying the benefits of cannabis. To study cannabis, you had a show that it grew breasts or dropped IQ or hurt your testicles or did something. You had to show some harm to get any funding. And now that's not really science. Science is when you're saying, is this good or bad? Can this help? Can this not help? Science isn't saying the government wants us to show it's bad and they're giving me all this money. So I'm going to do this rigged study to show that it's bad. Uh, For example, they they tried so hard to kill monkeys and dogs with cannabis. It's so sad. These experiments are gruesome. They gave them like 600 milligrams worth of THC. Now a puff is five milligrams. So a gummy bear is five milligrams. They gave these monkeys like 120,000 gummy bears to try to kill them. And they never could kill the monkeys or the dogs. Uh, but it was just a gruesome experiment, but they would, they really were trying to show that marijuana, that you could fatally overdose. I mean, the problem is you have to smoke something like 30 times your own body weight in cannabis in like five minutes just to, uh, fatally over, it's literally impossible, but they tried. So some of the experiments were just, were just gruesome, um, and uh, you know, again, uh, the, the research is so spiked and it, it makes it really complicated to know how to deal with it because it was research, it was done, we're stuck with it. But at the same time, it wasn't really science if it was just trying to show a predetermined conclusion. I, The analogy I make is like the home run hitter who was on a lot of steroids. Uh, you know, Mark McGuire or whoever, Barry Bonds, they did hit, get the home run record, but they were on steroids. So they sort of did hit the home runs and they sort of didn't hit the home runs. I sort of look at the research like that, like it exists, but it's not by any means untainted.
0: So we've talked a lot about the demonization Um, in the other direction. You know, sometimes I've spoken to um, cannabis activists that I sometimes feel are trying to sell me on this idea that cannabis is this miracle drug that can just fix everything. Um, You know, I I don't meet many activists like that, but I've met a few over my lifetime. And sometimes I think some folks may go too far in that direction. I'm not sure that I buy that it's a complete miracle drug. And I know there are risks associated with it as you talk about in the book. So can you talk about how you know, maybe cannabis isn't a miracle drug. Um, And what are some of the risks?
1: Well, that's a great question. I actually, one of the things I do in the book, kind of narrative device, is I argue it from both sides. I talk about what's the reefer pessimists, and I argue from their point, from beginning to end, about how cannabis isn't helpful and is harmful for everything. And I talk about the cannabis, those exact people that you're referring to, and about how they think it can cure everything. It's more of a religious belief than sort of a set of medical beliefs. And I, sort of take both sides to task in the book. I probably take the reefer pessimist to task um, more aggressively because they're sort of more off the spectrum of what most people believe and what the science shows. But um, an example is this, looking at my brother, Danny, who died of cancer. Cannabis is great for cancer pain. Cannabis is great for nausea, for chemotherapy, for weight loss, for loss of appetite. Cannabis does not cure cancer. And there are a lot of cannabis advocates that will walk around and say, yeah, I cured my cannabis, i I treating my cannabis with cancer. And now cannabis does in the cell have very interesting anti-cancer activity. And I wouldn't be surprised if maybe 10 years from now, uh, it'll be a component of chemotherapy because it is anti-cancer. But there's never been a single study showing you can take cannabis for your cancer and you will get better despite a lot of anecdotal stories, some of which from people I really trust and like. But the fact is, if you get cancer, you see an oncologist, you get chemotherapy. And then if the chemotherapy makes you sick, or if the cancer is making you sick, you use cannabis as an adjunct, to feel better you don't use it to treat your cancer so that would be a perfect example and i would say the people that shouldn't use cannabis we don't know that it's safe for pregnancy we don't know that it's safe for breastfeeding now there's a caveat in medicine for every rule and if someone's having really really severe nausea and vomiting with pregnancy and they're in the hospital and they're getting intravenous Haldol and lorazepam and benadryl and thorazine it's hard to argue that cannabis would be worse for them than all of those Pharmaceuticals. But generally speaking, I don't recommend it for pregnant or breastfeeding women. And then teenagers shouldn't use cannabis because there's some concern that it could harm their developing brain. Now I waited till age 13 till I started using cannabis. I'm just kidding. I was back then I was a teenager and I couldn't care less. Now I I don't recommend it for people before 18 because I think it can uh, harm your brain. But again, there are caveats to this. If my brother's dying of cancer, who cares if he's using cannabis? Or all these kids with autism, there's all this new data that CBD with a little bit of THC thrown in can be really helpful. And these kids- it's In what
0: autism- way? I'm just curious about that. Not to-
1: Absolutely. Well, it helps with the injurious, self-injurious behavior, the hitting, the banging, the slapping. Um, so the what's called the non-core symptoms of autism. But, but there's some new evidence that THC might even help with the cruelest symptoms of autism, which are the core symptoms. And the THC, by way it works on its neurotransmitter system, the endocannabinoid system with interacts with another neurotransmitter system, the oxytocin syndrome. you know, oxytocin's like the love hormone, the hug hormone. I tried to do a hug and my green screen just made it look like I was in a straitjacket. but um, they, you know, it, it might really help with the core symptoms of autism, the connection, the eye contact, the emotional connection. And again, these kids, these teenagers and kids with autism, they bombard them to control their behavior with Adderall, Thorazine, Haldol, Lorazepam. And it's very hard to argue that a little bit of THC is more dangerous than those heavy duty neuroleptics and psychostimulants. So again, all these rules. And then the final thing I want to say is that like cannabis is very helpful for people with anxiety, for depression, for PTSD. If someone has psychosis, a family history of psychosis or personal history of psychosis like schizophrenia or bipolar, cannabis can be highly, highly destabilizing. So someone with a history of psychosis, I wouldn't use cannabis in, or I would have a very, very extensive discussion about risks and benefits before starting it.
0: Why, why is that when it comes to psychosis and cannabis? Why, why does that interaction, um, you know, wh- why can it worsen that?
1: Well, that's a really difficult question to answer. I don't think they actually know yet. It has to do with dopamine and the reward centers. And and there's genetic linkage. And they truly don't know. Uh, People, for example, who have schizophrenia are very avid for cannabis. And one theory is that the cannabis is causing the schizophrenia. That's actually not true because the rates of schizophrenia have been 1% over the last 70 years. And the rates of cannabis use worldwide and the rates of cannabis use have gone from like in the hundreds of thousands to the hundreds of millions over the last 70 years. And if cannabis were causing schizophrenia, the rates of schizophrenia would have to go up. However, uh, cannabis is thought to precipitate it earlier and can, and um, they're not sure exactly how. An- another theory is that people who are prone to get schizophrenia in their sort of pre-schizophrenic distress are very drawn to cannabis because they self-treat themselves. And it only looks like the cannabis is treating the schizophrenia. And then the third theory is that the same gene controls for cannabis use and schizophrenia. So they're just linked true, true, and unrelated. So they're still they're going to be disentangling this for decades, if you ask me.
0: So it sounds like there's still a lot that we don't understand uh, about cannabis. Can you talk about why that is and maybe how doctors can learn more? about cannabis and how we can get more research done into this?
1: Well, I think we don't understand a lot for a couple of reasons. One, because all the research was, had a political agenda, let's demonize cannabis. It wasn't genuine basic research trying to understand it. Does it help? Does it hurt? How does it work? We haven't studied the endocannabinoid system, this ancient system of receptors and neurotransmitters that cannabis uses. All animals have an endocannabinoid system, but we're way behind in all this research because of the war on drugs that's issue number one. Issue number two is that cannabis is really complicated. Remember, we're used to studying one molecule at a time. Let's study ibuprofen. Let's study lisinopril for blood pressure. Cannabis has like 500 different molecules in it. Um, and there are many different strains of cannabis. Some make you go energetic and want to go out. Others make you relax, sleepy, hungry, horny. They just affect people differently. And again, it's a really complicated plant with like 500 different components, many of which are biologically active and in fact, psychoactive. So I think it's, we've done a terrible job of studying it because of the war on drugs and combine that with the fact that it's an incredibly complicated plant. We still have a long ways to go.
0: So one thing I wanted to get into was, um, when it comes to people that are skeptical based on anecdotal experiences they've had, uh, with cannabis. So like for, for instance, with me, um, I have a relative who smoked a lot of cannabis and they started getting, you know, kind of violent and very angry, sort of like psychosis almost. Uh, And that sort of made me question uh, my beliefs about cannabis and whether it was all just, uh, you know, it made me question my canatopianism, right? (laughs) Uh, So what do you say to people that based on an anecdotal experience will think, oh, this, you know, I was wrong. It's it's this horrible, you know, drug and it'll, you know, what, what do you say to people that become uh, sort of reefer um, pessimists, as you put it, uh, after maybe a bad experience or seeing someone have a bad experience with it?
1: Well, just like the Canatopians have to look beyond their experience and realize some people have a very bad time with it and it doesn't work for everybody, the Canapessimists have to understand that a lot of other people have good, experiences with it i mean and that's why we do research and why we do data and why we communicate with each other because anybody can have a bad reaction to a drug um i give a lot of people penicillin for strep throat you could be the one in a thousand that gets a penicillin allergy, has an anaphylactic reaction, end up in the hospital. Then what would you think of penicillin? What would you think of me? You'd be like, "This doctor sucks. Penicillin's a lethal weapon." If you didn't rely on like the experience of other people, so you could only go so far from a particular anecdote. But with your um, acquaintance who had that bad experience. First of all, cannabis can cause psychosis, so the the cannabis certainly could have been making things worse. And second of all, the cannabis could have been a symptom. I mean, really distressed people grab alcohol, grab cannabis, they grab drugs, they grab whatever they can to feel less suffering. So it's hard to say in these situations where the cannabis was a symptom or like a marker or a cause, But clearly in someone who's very psychologically troubled, uh, using a ton of cannabis is not a good idea. I mean, I'd be the first person to uh, sign on to that. In fact, one of the things I feel like I'm really good at is I treat people for cannabis use disorder, for cannabis addiction, because I feel like I understand what it can do for people, what people want it to do for people, but I'm very honest with people, what it might be actually doing to them and I help them get off it. So uh, you know, again, it's a question of just being able to generalize from beyond your own personal experience which again i have to do every five minutes as a primary care doctor i mean if i just based things just on my clinical experience it would be a mess i have to read the studies
0: i thought that was a good point that you brought up like if if you gave someone penicillin and they had a bad reaction to it I don't think most people are going to say, oh, now no one should use penicillin. But we, you know, that's often been the case with marijuana. You know, someone has a bad experience with it. And then everyone is like, oh, well, you know, well, it's a gateway drug. Example.
1: Can I give you one more example? So, um, you know, there's a certain type of data that everybody's looking for called a randomized controlled trial. Um, And, you know, the big fight over what kind of data is appropriate and so forth. But we've been using aspirin and lithium since before they developed the randomized control trial. And um, just look at aspirin and what would have happened if they did to aspirin what they did to cannabis. If you only looked at the harms of aspirin, you'd have this medicine, not this medicine, you'd have this poison that causes ulcers, bleeding and... um, all kinds of allergic reactions. And if you didn't study the benefits, you wouldn't know that it prevents heart attacks and strokes. We'd literally hate aspirin. We'd think it was evil incarnate if we only looked at the harms and didn't look at the benefits. So that's just an example of why it's really dangerous to do this with cannabis and with other drugs. You don't get a full and balanced view of what the the pros and the cons of this thing are. And how can anybody have a informed decision an informed discussion if you don't fully know the harms and the benefits. That's one of my big points for the canatopians You should want to know the harms. Like I know that alcohol is not good for me. I still might want to have a beer at a barbecue, even though it's bad for me. I'm making an informed decision. Not good for me. Tastes good. I'm going to do it. It's the same with cannabis. The people who use it should want to know the harms as much as anybody else, because that's the only way you protect yourself and that's the only way you can make an informed, intelligent decision. And, you know, I could just tell who's going to say what when a new study comes out um, on Twitter based on what they believe. If it's uh, about harms, all the you know, reefer pessimists are going to be like, great study. And if it's about benefits, all the canatopians are going to be like, great study. And the reefer pessimists are going to be like, what a piece of junk science. And the fact is we all have to know the harms. We all have to know the benefits so we can have an adult sensible discussion about who should and shouldn't be using cannabis.
0: So that brings us to another point. We were talking about teens and cannabis earlier. Uh, You know, I don't think this deer thing has worked out very well for the proponents of dare, uh, the sort of reefer pessimists. So, I mean, how should, you know, maybe parents be talking to their kids about cannabis? Because in a way, I think, you know, it's a lot like the whole uh, debate people have about, oh, should we teach our kids about sex ed or should we teach them abstinence? I'm like, well, you can try to teach them abstinence, but, you know, kids are hormonal and they're horny and, you know, they're going to have sex, uh, you know, and I think telling kids Oh, don't do these drugs. It's just going to make them more curious, you know, and you go through a rebellious phase as well. So I guess how should we be talking to teenagers about cannabis use and its benefits and risks?
1: Great question. First of all, the abstinence programs have what, like a 99.9% failure rate, but people still pretend they work anyways. These evangelicals. It's like, come on, you're not doing so well if everybody's pregnant, but, and then they can't get abortions. It's like, you just, um, But the thing about educating kids about cannabis, I think just say wait is what we have to say you know, just say no didn't work at all. Just say wait, has some hope for the future. Like you'll be able to do it when you're older. Most teens don't want to hurt their brains. They don't want to harm themselves. Uh, You know, you have to realize that the teen brain is geared towards uh, novelty seeking and excitement. So kids are probably going to experiment with alcohol and with cannabis. Hopefully not with anything too dangerous. Alcohol is pretty dangerous, but nothing more dangerous than cannabis. Um, So you don't freak out if they try it. But I think if you tell your kids the truth, And you don't freak out and you just give them good information. Like I may have done it when I was younger, but we didn't know as much. Now I'm not against it, but I think we, people should wait till they're 18 or 21 so they don't harm their brain. And if you're just open and honest, you're a trusted partner. So A, they believe you. B, they'll ask you more questions. C, they won't supplant you with more dubious sources of information like their friends or whatever the internet. And then D, most importantly, if you're like a, trusted, non-punitive, you're not the jailer, you're the trusted partner, then if they get in trouble with cannabis or they're drunk at a party and they don't want to drive home or they try a drug and they're really scared, they'll call you. They'll ask you. You'll be there to help them. They'll, They'll feel like they can ask for help and get help from you. So I'm much more into the collaborative, be honest, actually be radical and tell your kids the truth about all this stuff and and, 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 and trust that they have enough sense to not smoke a ton of weed at an early age. Cause you just don't want, they're just not going to want to hurt themselves. So that's sort of my approach. I, I I do have to say that I don't think anybody's entirely figured this out yet. We know much better what doesn't work, everything and anything related to the DARE program than what does work. But I, I, I someone once told me um you can't go wrong for be, with being honest. I mean, it, it, it it's amazing how little trouble and you know, you know, misguided you'll get if you just like tell the truth to people. You talk a little
0: bit about dosages and just, you know, I've known people that'll smoke a little bit of cannabis and it seems to help them. I know people that will smoke a lot and uh, sometimes it'll help them. Other times they'll, you know, I mean, I don't want to bring up what you brought up earlier, that whole idea of, uh, oh, it'll make you lazy. I have met some people that are kind of, you know lazy that smoke a lot, but I've also met people that are very motivated. So it kind of gets confusing in some ways. What, what, what do we have to know about dosages and how much people smoke and the effect it'll have on them?
1: I was going to say that was a great question, but I think I'm going to say that was a great sequence of eight questions. that <laughs> You nested in there. Um, first of all, my dad used to have this theory that cannabis was like an enhancer. So if someone's motivated, it'll make them more motivated. And if they're not motivated, it'll make them less motivated. Um, so number two, the cannabis can be a, a symptom. You know, people have crappy lives, they're depressed, they're miserable, they don't have a lot of prospects. You know, they might just be smoking cannabis to get some joy and to alleviate the boredom and the, you know, this sort of the sense of like hopelessness. So it's really hard to tell what the cannabis is a symptom of and what the cannabis is causing. Now, I do think that we use a lot of cannabis and that people tend to use a lot of it and that a lot of the times it works a lot better if you use less. Uh, I mean, the reason people have tolerance and withdrawal is because we have these natural cannabis receptors, cannabinoid receptors in our brains. And that's how we mediate a lot of our normal bodily functioning, even without cannabis. We mediate, you know, feeding, temperature, hunger, reproduction, uh, all kinds of things. Keeping your body in homeostasis, keeping your body in steady state is all related to our natural endocannabinoid system. Now, um... When you use a ton of cannabis, your natural cannabis receptors downregulate. They, they become sparse. They become fewer and far between. Meaning that if you were to use it every day, then to stop, your natural cannabinoids have many fewer receptors to work on. And that's why people feel grumpy. They have trouble sleeping and they have trouble eating if they stop abruptly. They can have tolerance and they could have withdrawal. So I think that. People really sabotage how effective cannabis could be for them medically, or for whatever reason, for lifestyle enhancement. If they use it all the time, we have these. You know, I, I I treat these people that get these vape pens and they puff on them nonstop from morning till night, and I just don't think the cannabis does very much or lasts very long if you smoke that much. I think so. I think it's bad for you, bad for your lungs, bad for you in general, and bad for you in that it like takes away the possibility of cannabis being particularly helpful. And a lot of what I try to do when I help people is try to have them cut down a lot, not necessarily completely, but have a much healthier relationship with cannabis so that they're using it modestly. They're not down-regulating all the receptors. They're not desperately puffing away to maintain, to chase after the effect that lasts shorter and shorter and shorter. So I think that there are a lot of people that use way too much cannabis. I don't think it's good for them. And I don't think it, it also, I don't think it helps accomplish any of their goals. So I'm, I'm on board with you on that one. So,
0: with regards to how cannabis actually works on the the brain, like what's the nitty-gritty of how it affects the receptors?
1: Well, THC is a partial agonist of the cannabinoid receptors, which is why it works as effects. It causes relaxation. In most people, it causes euphoria, it causes hunger, and some people it causes sleepiness. Um, it makes people hungry. I mean, it's really interesting. Um, They came up with a weight loss drug called Ramonabant, where they said, hey, cannabis causes the munchies. Let's block the cannabis receptor, and that will cause weight loss. And the good news is that it did cause weight loss. Uh, The bad news is that people became suicidal because cannabis also regulates your emotions. So they had to take it off the market like in an emergency basis. But the fact is, you can see a future where... We're able to tickle certain parts of the receptors and not tickle other parts of the receptors. Say we could block those parts of the cannabis receptors in those parts of the brain that make you hungry. No more munchies, you lose weight. Yet we don't affect the parts that regulate your mood, so no suicidal behavior. So it, it's really, we're just at the dawn of understanding this whole receptor system and. All these pharmaceutical companies are are, are frantically trying to come up with these designer cannabinoids that will do just what I suggested. You know, tickle one type of receptor and ignore another type of receptor. And it's going to be absolutely fascinating what they come up with in the next five to ten years. Not to mention that cannabis has like five hundred different components, and in and of themselves, in and of themselves, they might be really, really effective. Uh, so we have a lot of research to do, not the nonsense, let's prove it's harmful research, but I think we have a ton of research to do in terms of benefits. And we're just going to get better and better at treating people with this stuff.
0: What for you is the most exciting uh, development you've seen uh, over maybe the past few years when it comes to cannabis research?
1: Well, I think the most, that's a really good question. The The most exciting development, I mean, honestly, I think that What's going to be really interesting with cannabis is all the things that I talk about in my book, but which doctors haven't been allowed to talk about because it's been heretical. Like, Whenever you say anything positive about cannabis, the psychiatrists say, you're um, encouraging drug use. It's like, I'm not encouraging drug use. I'm just trying to give both sides of the story about a drug so that people can make informed decisions. And I think it's really interesting the way people have been using cannabis sort of extra medically. For the last 5 10,000 years the way it helps people with music appreciate music art it helps them appreciate their sexuality it helps them with their spirituality it helps them to connect with other people like we're in this epidemic of loneliness in our society and cannabis is something that could really help two people or a group of people bond together and connect and you know during the pandemic it was so bad i'd have some elderly patients making primary care appointments with me, just to have someone to talk to. And after about an hour, i have to see another patient. I'm like, look, I'm really sorry, but I have to see someone else. And it was so miserable how lonely people are. And here we have something, I mean, it's no wonder that it evolved with us if it makes us hungry, horny, and more creative uh, and better problem solving. So it's no wonder that it's been with us for our entire time. But I think the ways in which it could help us with connection and mindfulness and appreciation of each other, appreciation of the natural world and appreciation of beauty in the world, I think are going to be the most interesting, and it's it's the ways in which uh, cannabis psychedelics. Well, I mean, cannabis is a psychedelic, but cannabis and psychedelics are going to affect humanity in a very positive way if we don't blow ourselves up first. I think it's going to be very beautiful to watch.
0: It's interesting you mentioned uh, psychiatrists. It's kind of funny we do live in this society where, you know, a psychiatrist will say, "Oh, you're you're supporting drug use if you're recommending medical cannabis." Uh, but then the same psychiatrists will prescribe, say, um uh, benzos or well, I was gonna say Adderall. um, it's interesting to me because uh, I know a few people that are struggling now, uh because of the Adderall shortage. Um, oh, yeah. so I, I mean, there's I think there's like any drug, I think Adderall uh has its benefits and usages, but that same sort of thinking isn't always applied to marijuana. You know, it's sort of like, oh, that's bad. Uh, When really, you know, we don't treat any other medicine that way.
1: Right. And there are many reasons. I read a lot about this in my book. Part of it is that a particular doctor's perspective on cannabis depends on his or her vantage point. So, for example, it's very hard to find an oncologist that's anti-medical marijuana. You know, like 90 plus percent of oncologists are like strongly in favor of it. They see it helping their patients. Like you want your patients to do well. Now, in truth, the psychiatrists, particularly the pediatric, the adolescent psychiatrists, do see the rare but very tragic cases of like a young adult being destabilized by cannabis and having their psychosis get worse. So, But the problem is they don't treat people with cannabis. They don't see any wins. They don't see any success stories. And also, I think they sort of brainwash themselves. They just read the negative stuff. They're true reefer pessimists. They're not um, reading about the benefits and the harms. I mean, the American Psychiatric Association still puts medical marijuana and these derogatory quotation marks, like which just flies a slap in the face to the 94% of Americans that support using it uh, for medical purposes. So, I mean, now the really cynical part of me, and I'm not really a cynical person, Goes with the Upton Sinclair quote, Upton Sinclair quote, which says it's difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding it. And people treat themselves with cannabis. They treat their anxiety, their depression, their PTSD themselves. To get Adderall from a psychiatrist, you have to pay $500 an hour. So I, I hope it's not just as simple as that. I hope it's just that they need to grow and change like everybody else and they need to be more open minded. But um, I do write about this a lot in my book because, you know, with the psychedelics, um, you know, with cannabis, the psychiatrists have been against legalization for the last 50 years and they don't, they haven't seemed to care that people are getting locked up. We've had 20 million arrests for nonviolent cannabis possession mostly in black and brown people. They use cannabis at the same rate as whites do, and they get locked up four times as often. Why would the psychiatrist not worry about the effect of this on your mental health? Yet, you know, with cannabis, it's like, oh, golly, that's illegal. We shouldn't do that. And then with the psychedelics, with acid, with mushrooms, with MDMA, they're like, hey, man, let's trip. Let's do some therapy. Who cares about the man? Let's do some drugs. It's so hypocritical. And there are a lot of different theories. i read a lot about this too, but... Uh, you know, cannabis paved the way uh, or is it white drug, bad drug or is it the whole financial argument? You need a psychiatrist involved for the psychedelics. So, um, you know, it's very been disappointing And but but I do have to say the psychiatrists are coming along on board and, and many of them are like uh, adopting it or at least um, giving up their like, you know strident resistance to treating anything with medical cannabis.
0: So, Something I also wanted to talk about was um, when it comes to the prohibition of cannabis in the past. What are the lessons we can learn for that? Because uh, you know, I I mentioned the Adderall shortage, Uh, and I know people that really benefit from you know taking their suggested doses of Adderall. I know people on anti-anxiety meds like benzos and stuff that have to take those, but they don't abuse them. But I also know people that see anytime there's a drug crisis, people say, oh, we should prohibit this. And I think we can learn from what we did with cannabis that uh, prohibition doesn't always work out the way we think it will. And it doesn't always work out positively. Um, So can we learn that? Can we learn the lesson of, you know, the negative impacts of cannabis prohibition when looking at other medicines and, you know, arguments for prohibiting those medicines?
1: Absolutely. Well, positively. But the irony is that we did. We learned that during prohibition. Prohibition was a disaster. People were blinding themselves with moonshine and, and methanol. Um, You know, the, the cartels were getting rich and ordinary, pe- ordinary people were getting arrested. It was Prohibition of alcohol was a disaster. We learned that lesson. And the question is how many times we have to learn it. I mean, I honestly think we need to learn it for all of the other drugs. I mean, I truly think that if opiates, we have had 110,000 deaths from fentanyl in the last 12 months for two years straight. I honestly think that if opiates were legal, regulated, dispensed maybe by the government, but you didn't need to go through hoops to get them, nobody would be dying of fentanyl. We'd be saving 100,000 lives every year. So I think we need to learn this not only with cannabis, the same lesson we learned with alcohol, But we need to learn this with all drugs. Every single society in human history has used psychoactive agents. The thing that's like profoundly hypocritical about our society is that alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine are good. And, you know, oxycodone is good because I prescribe it, but heroin's bad. You go to prison for that, even though it's the exact same thing. I just think there's so much hypocrisy. And rarely do you see hypocrisy as blatant as when it comes to drugs. And I think the, the whole war on drugs has taken us like- Fifty steps in the wrong direction. And I I couldn't agree with you more. I think we we have to learn this lesson and apply it to all these other drugs because there's no reason to be locking people up.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the opiate thing because I I knew people that were prescribed uh, opiates and didn't abuse them. And when that was sort of taken away from them because, oh, we don't want to prescribe these anymore. That's when they started turning to the streets for things. And yeah, that's when the real problem began.
1: The street drugs are all contaminated. The right. government had the most boneheaded response. They're like, let's put pressure on doctors to not prescribe opiates. So, all the chronic pain people who are desperate to just not be in chronic pain and all the people who are addicted, the, it's a really crappy addiction, addiction treatment in this country. A lot of people can't get treatment for their addictions. They just went to the streets and then they're buying opiates, not just heroin, these days you buy pills and the pills that you buy can look just like a Percocet or they can look just like a Xanax, but in reality they're contaminated with fentanyl. So it's, and and cocaine, people are overdosing snorting cocaine because this fentanyl in the cocaine supply. So I agree with you completely. I This whole law and order police state, like let's clamp down on the drugs. All it's doing is increasing suicides among chronic pain patients and overdoses among people who are addicted and people who are suffering from chronic pain. It's completely backfired. And the most amazing thing is it backfires and they still do the same thing over and over and over again. It's like they're immune to, as my dad once said, um, this is a great quote of his. (laughs) Uh, My dad once said, if illegal drugs don't always make the user act in a crazy manner, they certainly can make the non-user act in a crazy manner. And I think that's sort of a good summary of our history of like trying to regulate these illegal drugs. Just
0: a few more things, if you have the time. Um, I hope this doesn't sound like a dumb question, but, you know, people always bring up, uh, is cannabis addictive? And my understanding has always been that it can be psychologically addictive, but it's not physically addictive. So in other words, you're not going (laughs) to get withdrawals.
1: Yeah. It, can, it can be physically and psychologically. Okay, addictive. okay. Now, how addictive it's been has been vastly exaggerated by the psychiatric community. The way they exaggerate it is they include tolerance and withdrawal. As I explained before, that's how you get sort of tolerant to it. Um, when we prescribe opiates, we don't include tolerance and withdrawal because everybody on medicinal opiates has tolerance and withdrawal. So why they include those in cannabis is to inflate the numbers. And then the Cannotopians think nobody gets addicted, but definitely some people get addicted. I think it's about three to 5% of people. Um, it could definitely derail people's lives. I mean, you have to keep it in context. Nobody's robbing pharmacies. Nobody's injuring themselves like they do to get opiates. But it's certainly, I've seen people smoke their lives away and I've seen it really interfere with their life goals. And I think it can be addictive. So can be addictive, The quality of the addiction is not as vicious as an opiate addiction, and it's certainly not lethal, like an addiction to alcohol or to benzodiazepines. And uh, the rates of addiction have been exaggerated uh, as a cudgel against the legalization movement. But yes, people absolutely, definitely, definitively can get addicted to cannabis, and it requires treatment and empathy and compassion, just like any other addiction.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I think medical cannabis for people that maybe are older that uh, haven't considered ever, you know, treating their ailment or their pain with medical cannabis, I don't think medical cannabis is, uh, how do I put this? It's not like your your father's uh, marijuana that he got on the streets, right? I mean, it's it's very different. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. That's one, one theory why youth rates, teen rates of cannabis have not been going up. Um, with legalization, and one theory is that you know, a drug dealer will sell it to anybody. Whereas, try to get into a dispensary if you don't have the right, you know, ID and the right cannabis card and so forth. Um, but another theory is that like it's just not as cool. If you see grandma taking a toke on the, you know, in the living room, you know, if she's changing her catheter, is just not as exciting as it used to be. It's not this like edgy drug. So I think that really does affect kids, the fact that their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents are using it. It just seems to make it a little bit less cool. Like how how does the,
0: the medical cannabis differ maybe from what people used to get on the streets?
1: Well, all cannabis is a lot stronger now. Uh, you know, um, we fetishize high THC. I think it would be much more medicinal if we had less – lower levels of thc and higher levels of cbd and some of the other cannabinoids that help with anxiety pain and stress um so cannabis is a lot stronger now than it than it used to be is the main difference um and to a certain extent prohibition made it less medicinal because when it was illegal the economical thing for the drug dealer to do was to breed up the thc to make it as efficient as possible And when you breed up the THC, you you breed down exactly these other medicinal cannabinoids. So prohibition has made cannabis much stronger and much less medicinal, among other great things that prohibition has contributed to our society.
0: So when it comes to, let's say you have one person with uh, anxiety issues and another person with uh, like physical pain issues, like do you have to prescribe them different strains of, of cannabis or what, how does that work?
1: Yeah, often you give different strains, but often it's just a question of how much THC, how much CBD, and how much of the other components are involved. So strains is not the best word. There are so many strains, and there's a lot of marketing and a lot of nonsense about the strains. If you go into a cannabis dispensary, I I noticed this about five years ago, all the strains have eerily similar descriptions you know, whatever, i would just make up a strain. Sour Diesel, I mean, that's not a made-up strain, but, you know, starts with a euphoric head rush with great creativity followed by a gentle body high that helps with chronic pain and anxiety. Like, they all have almost exactly the same description. And that makes me very, very skeptical. So I think that we are focusing less on the word strain and more on a little clunky word called chemovar. But the chemovar is like, what's in it? How much THC? How much CBD? How much of the other active cannabinoids? What are the other molecules that might give you a certain effect? And I think we're getting better at understanding how certain combinations of rearrangements of the cannabis plant can affect people. And I think we're going to be doing a lot more of that. We're going to get a certain chemovar, which I guess you could call a strain, but um, which is good for pain. A different one might be good for insomnia. A different one might be good for ADHD. And I think we're getting better and better every year at understanding what the different components do and how together in a, like what's called the entourage effect, all the different components together can work to help alleviate a particular condition.
0: What's the difference between, uh, this is really basic and I, I should know more, but the difference between THC versus CBD?
1: Oh yeah. THC is the most common cannabinoid cannabis working molecule. And it's the one that gets you high. Whereas CBD is the second most common. um, But CBD is interesting because it doesn't get you high. It doesn't have any misuse liability. It's not addictive at all. One in three Americans have tried a CBD product. One in seven Americans right now are trying something with CBD and people tend to use CBD for chronic pain, anxiety, insomnia. It's approved for childhood epilepsy. Um, so they're very different because THC is what gets you high and CBD doesn't get you high and isn't addictive, but isn't as strong um, in alleviating many of these things. I mean, in truth, the CBD and the THC work really well together. It's a really well um, well, it's a plant that's evolved really well to help us. So, before we close out, uh, I know you
0: mentioned psychedelics before, and interestingly, I think you had a uh, blurb for your book um, from Rick Doblin, the founder yeah. of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Uh, what's your thoughts on the state of uh, psychedelic research and just the, I guess, you know, health and medicinal uses of psychedelics?
1: Well, it couldn't be more exciting in general and to me personally. Again, remember, I read my dad's book, Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, at age 13. And I'm like, yeah, let's study this stuff until I found out he was getting in trouble at Harvard for even suggesting that we study it or use it clinically. But I think it's been... Extraordinary, like revolutionary, some of these new studies that have come out. I mean, these are people studying from treatment resistant depression. This is depression defined as failure or three or more psychiatric drugs. These people are miserable. And then you take some psilocybin or you take some ketamine, and lo and behold, they're feeling better. I mean, as they've broken out of it. And it's not only for depression, it's also for addiction. I had a friend that was addicted to alcohol, she was drinking like two glasses of wine and night. And then she did an ayahuasca ceremony in Costa Rica. And then she stopped drinking for six months. Not only did she stop drinking, but the cigarettes went away for six months too. That wasn't even one of her goals. Interestingly, after like six months, both the alcohol and the cigarettes started coming back. So I think you're going to need like periodic treatments, but, but psychedelics for cluster headaches, for chronic pain, for OCD. I mean, I think we're just, again, at the tip of the iceberg and it's going to be Absolutely like spectacularly interesting what they come up with in the next three to ten years. So uh keep your seatbelt fastened, it's gonna be mind-blowing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that your father Lester was at um Harvard because I know Timothy Leary was also at Harvard, and it's funny to me because I know some people have said, you know, uh Lester Grinspoon was no Timothy Leary, and they mean that in a positive sense, uh, yeah, because you know Timothy
1: Tim- yeah, was like prancing around in tie-dyes my dad always had a suit on. He was a very serious academic. He also wrote books on like schizophrenia. He was a very mainstream psychiatrist who didn't mind getting into a fight or standing up for an unpopular position, but they were about as opposite in terms of demeanor and credibility and, um, you know, sort of comportment, Uh, which isn't to, to say that, you know, I'm not in some level a fan of Timothy Leary, but he really, I think my dad's, Especially at Harvard, my dad's way of going about things. Ultimately, who knows? History's written by the victors, right? My ultimately, the what my dad did seemed a lot more effective.
0: Yeah, well, that that's what I was going to get at. I there's a lot I like about Timothy Leary, um, just philosophically, but also I I kind of wonder these days if he set back uh, research into oh, psychedelics, whereas yeah, I think people listening to your father would have been better served by him, maybe than Timothy Leary when it came to advancing psychedelic research.
1: I think Timothy Leary said it back for for quite a long time, and I think it's really unfortunate. And, you know, I don't want to cast blame, but and it's always hard to know how your actions are going to are going to pan out. And it, it, it's easy to say, again, in retrospect, what the right thing to do was. But Harvard's a very conservative place. And, you know, They were shooting down my dad for writing the most scholarly books. I mean, how are they going to look at someone, you know, again, frolicking around in a tie dye on acid? I mean, it's just, it's just like a mismatch, you know?
0: You also have a blurb uh, from uh, Carl Hart, who, um, he does a lot of work, I think on uh, addiction issues. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk just a bit about addiction issues and dealing with those and whether cannabis can, help with some addiction issues?
1: Oh, absolutely. First of all, Carl Hart's a great guy, a really smart researcher, and a really dedicated uh, activist for social justice. I, there are few people I admire more than, than Carl Hart. He does great work. And, you know, cannabis can be addictive, but it also is a gateway off of addiction to harder drugs for, for many people. We use it for harm reduction. I've had so much success in my clinical practice getting people off opiates for chronic pain onto cannabis or getting people off alcohol onto cannabis. And their quality of life improves and it's not life-threatening. I mean, I think one of, the, one of the, I have a whole chapter about this in my book about how cannabis can help people with more dangerous addictions and can help transition them off. So I think that's going to be a huge area. Once the psychiatrists flip and realize that they don't have to be like against everything cannabis, they're going to be uh, hopefully helping us get people off these more dangerous addictions with cannabis because the cannabis doctors are doing it and we're having a ton of success.
0: Do you think, um, I just wanted to pick your brain on this briefly, but do you you think in some ways we look at addiction, uh, the wrong way, I guess in, in our culture and society, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, Johan, uh, Hari, uh, who wrote chasing the Scream," And (laughs) sometimes I do get this impression that, you know, if people had support systems, I think they'd get over addiction easier. I think we also don't even look at how, you know, if your life really sucks, if you're living in poverty, you know, you may end up just smoking crack or doing some type of drug to alleviate that pain. But we don't really look at drug use that way and and addiction that way. And then we turn people into societal lepers, and they don't get better because they don't have any support systems. So
1: Do we look at addiction the wrong way in our society? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Look what they did in Portugal. They didn't just legalize drugs. They legalized drugs and took all this billions of dollars that we're wasting on law enforcement to persecute people who are using drugs. And they took the money and put it into addiction treatment, jobs, training, and housing. So people had a pathway out. And if you give people a pathway out, nobody wants to be addicted. They, People who are addicted are miserable. So I think that we waste so much money on law enforcement. And then you're absolutely right. These people have these miserable, crappy lives, and they just don't see a way out. And I think we could do so much better. But this is changing. We're getting there. Um, you know, people are realizing that the war on drugs is a disaster. People are realizing that law enforcement aren't the right people to be involved in drugs on any level. It should be doctors nurses social workers um public health servants and um we're evolving towards that but we just have a little digging out to do because the war we spent so much money brainwashing people and and militarizing neighborhoods during the war on drugs is going to take a while to recover from that i mean did, did you ever think
0: in- that we'd not not to interrupt you but did you ever think we'd reach the point we've reached now where i do think you're right i think most people have turned against the war on drugs. I think most people are in favor of uh medical marijuana. And I think even more people now than ever are in favor of legalization and treating addiction as uh, you know, a, a health issue and a social issue, even rather than just a criminal issue, uh, or you know, just as health issues rather than criminal issues. I never would have thought that this would have happened when I was growing up and and being fed the deer propaganda, which I was always off put by deer, but it seems like we've come so far. And I mean, did you ever expect
1: that we'd get this far when you were growing I up? I expected it. You know, why I expected it. I expected it growing up because this is what the people in my living room were talking about. The Carl Sagan's, the Lester Grinspoon's, the Allen Ginsberg's, the Norman Zinberg's. This is what they were talking about. And if I learned anything from my dad, it said, if you want to change the world, and you work hard at it, you actually can change the world. So I'm seeing what these people started come to fruition. And it's really, honestly, it's the most inspiring thing I can, can even, I can't even describe how inspiring it is. In closing, uh, what do you hope my listeners get out of this
0: conversation? And what would you suggest to people that are maybe having health issues or, you know, they, they need pain relief, and they're thinking about looking into uh, using medical cannabis to deal with those issues?
1: Well, this has been a great conversation and we've covered a ton of territory. I would say that in my book, I covered exactly the same territory, but in a lot more detail. So it's a really good resource for exactly those people. They could find it in Amazon or in bookstores, or people could also reach me if they have questions at petergrinspoon.com. You spell Grinspoon, grin like smile, spoon like fork. So it's just petergrinspoon.com and if people send me questions i'm happy to answer them but i think that what people need to take out is that cannabis helps millions of people it doesn't help anybody it's like any other drug or medicine we could use it wisely we could use it foolishly it could really help us or it could harm us and just be thoughtful about this stuff
0: well i think that's a great note to end on i hope everyone reads "Seeing through the smoke a uh, very good book and uh just to, to lead us out here, uh, you got any good uh Carl Sagan story that you can tell us? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, it was just interesting. Um, he was such a smart guy. And um, he and my dad would go to dinner. They'd of course like smoke a joint before going to dinner. So they'd have a really, you know, interesting um conversations. And Carl Sagan would have a little dictaphone like with him. And then in the middle of dinner, we'd just all be talking, and then he'd be like, excuse me. And then he'd start talking to himself. He'd be like, Maybe the reason industrial societies don't communicate with other ones is because they blow themselves up right when they reach technological maturity. Click, and then he'd be like, "Okay," and he'd get back to the conversation. But he'd interrupt our conversation with these thoughts that were generated from the cover this very stone conversation with my dad. These brilliant thoughts, and he'd just feel completely unselfconscious about like interrupting the dinner conversation, excusing himself whispering into his dictaphone and then apparently his secretary would type it up later. And then we'd come up with like contact or broke his brain or all the other books that he wrote. So that was part of his creative process. And, and in my book, seeing through the smoke in the chapter that talks about, um, lifestyle enhancement and the way it benefits people's lives, not just medical. I talk a lot about Carl Sagan's creative process. He, there's a lot of documentation of that, about how he used cannabis, to generate ideas, and then the next day he would go through them and use the good ones and discard the bad ones. So uh, he was a real, real advocate in the in the powers of cannabis to uh, stimulate um, and augment creative thinking. Well, thank you again, Peter Grinspoon, for coming on Parallax Views. Absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter Grinspoon, M.D., and that you'll check out his book, *Seeing Through the Smoke*: A Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com/parallaxviews, where you can get the first two hundred episodes of Parallax Views in the Parallax Views archive and also early release episodes of Parallax Views. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash parallaxviews One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with J.J. Michael. To Parallax Views with J.J. Michael.
1: The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront